The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. You know, there is one tiny little word, one little word that can get you into a lot of trouble. That is the word and. That little tiny word, the word and, man, if you're not careful, that can get you in a lot of trouble. And all of our country, in fact, all the, in some places of the world, that reality reverberated around in April of 1982. See, here's what happened in April 1982. Down here in South Florida, they were trying to crack down on the drugs that were illegally entering into uh, Miami-Dade. And so they set up a checkpoint right at the, in Florida City, right at the, right before you enter into the Keys, so that anyone who was coming up out of the Keys, their car would be searched. They would ask them questions, they'd look around in their car to make sure they were no illegal drugs entering into the rest of Florida. Well, the problem with that is if you've ever been down to the Keys, there's a very narrow two-lane highway that goes down to the Keys. That's the only way to drive down um, into the Florida Keys. And so that created a massive, massive traffic jam. It took hours and hours, even more hours than normal, hours and hours to get in and out. Some say it was up to a 17-mile traffic jam right there uh, to get out of the Keys. And so all of those businesses, which are effect, which tourism has a massive effect on, were complaining. And so the mayor of Key West came up to Miami-Dade and appealed at a court that that checkpoint would be removed and he was denied. So on his way out of the courtroom with reporters all around, he made this statement. By noon tomorrow, the Keys will secede from the union. No one expected him to say that. I mean, that was like, wait, what? He says, they're going to become a sovereign nation. Everyone was wondering what this was. This news story went all over the country. Reporters were flocking down to Key West. And sure enough, noon the next day, there was a press conference held in Key West. And the mayor of Key West stands in front of the camera. And now he's no longer the mayor of Key West. He is now the prime minister He's self-appointed the prime minister of the Conk Republic. And he unfurls this flag and says, look, if they are going to set the border at the top of the keys and treat us like a foreign nation, then we are going to treat the United States like a foreign, ma- foreign nation. And we, at this point, secede from the union. We are our own sovereign nation. I mean, an incredible, incredible statement. Now, here's the thing. If you've ever been down to the keys... The people in the Keys, they're, I mean, they're unique, okay? And I got to be honest, the deeper into the Keys, the more unique it gets, okay? And so the crowd there, they loved this. I mean, they were going crazy. They were cheering on. And, and, and it's really, the reports are conflicting. Was this just a publicity stunt or was he serious? Because there were definitely some people in the crowds that were serious, regardless of the consequences. Well, at this point, everyone around the country is hearing about hearing this speech that the Keys have declared themselves their own sovereign nation. But then the mayor took it, or excuse me, 
the prime minister, took it one step further. He added an and, and he really probably shouldn't have added the and. He said, we have seceded from the union and declare war on the United States. That probably wasn't too smart. And even if he was kidding, there were too many people in the crowd that took that seriously. In fact, at that point, there was a small airplane that went over a naval ship and pelted it with conch fritters. And as the story goes, right there at this news conference, there was a a person dressed in a naval uh, uniform, and someone took a piece of stale Cuban bread, threw it at the guy, and it might have been that point where the prime minister realized he had taken it too far. And so not long after he promptly surrendered to the United States. The war was over. Now, how long did the war last? One minute. For one minute, the Keys were at war with the United States. They surrendered. But not long after that, the former prime minister of the Congress Republic requested $1 billion in aid from the United States for all of the difficulties they faced post the war, okay? Now, was this just a publicity stunt or uh, was was he really serious? Were the people in the crowd serious? You know what? No one's exactly sure and the people in the Keys, if you're watching from the Keys, you guys are capable of anything, okay? So uh, who, who really knows? But one thing is for sure. Saying he's seceding from the Union is one thing. That little and they're declaring war, that took it to a whole nother level. See, sometimes things are, are, are one thing until you add these little words, and. Now, I, I bring all this up because we are in a series called Take Courage. And maybe you feel like you are called in your life to do great things. Maybe you believe that Uh, God's going to accomplish great things in your life, or you've got a great idea, or you've got a great dream. You want to accomplish something great, something that's going to require courage. And if that's how you feel, you need to be aware of all the trouble this little word and can get you in. There is a person in the Bible named Gideon who learned this lesson, and we're going to learn from the story how to handle that little word and by looking in the book of Judges chapter 7. And so if, if you would turn there in your Bible, uh, Judges chapter 7 verse 9, and as we are pursuing living a life that sees great things happen because of it, we got to know how to handle this word and. Open to Judges chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 9. As you're turning there, let me get you caught up. If you're just now joining us here at City Rev on our Take Courage series, we're looking at the life of Gideon. Um, or maybe if you've been following through this series, let me just get you reminded and caught up of what this story has happened in the life of Gideon. Right now in Israel, there's these foreign nations, the Midianites, the Amalekites. They have raided through Israel. They have set up their camp, and they've been doing this annually for the last several Several years right at harvest time. So right when all of their, they're ready to harvest all their crops, they just sweep through and they just pillage all of Israel. They take all their crops, they steal their herds, and this has left Israel utterly devastated, economically devastated, and, and devastated, and, and their future is uncertain economically. This is a really, really bad situation. And we find this one guy named Gideon. And when, we, when the story opens, we find Gideon. He is in a wine press threshing wheat 
That's not where you typically thresh wheat. You'd go up on a hillside or, or in a field because you're letting the chaff blow away. But he's in a wine press. Why? He's hiding in the wine press. While he's there, it says the angel of the Lord appears to him right there on a rock under a tree nearby. And he addresses Gideon. He says, hello, mighty warrior. And he proceeds to say, God is going to give you the enemies of Israel into your hand. God is going to use you to rescue his people. Now Gideon goes up to this angel and says, you've, <laughs> you've got the wrong guy. He says, I'm nobody. I'm just a farmer. Okay, he says, my tribe is the least, or my clan is the least in my tribe, and I'm the least in my family. I am nobody. But he says, but if what you're saying is true, can you please show me a sign? And the angel Lord says, sure. And so Gideon brings him this meal and to offer it to him. And the angel of the Lord says, put it here on this rock. And as a sign, the angel of the Lord reaches his staff forward. And when he touches that meal, fire springs out of the rock and just consumes all of it. And it's gone. And the angel of the Lord is gone. I mean, that is a... <laughs> crazy scene. I mean, miraculous. Why does God do that for Gideon? Because Gideon is terrified. He's not a courageous person. He's not a courageous warrior. He gives them this sign. And each step of the way, Gideon is terrified and fearful, but God gives him another sign and then another sign. And he gives them these miracles. He's so gracious to Gideon to give him these miracles to swell his courage that God is going to fight this battle through him. Well, in the last week, what we looked at is something that would have made it even more terrifying for Gideon. Gideon had called all these soldiers together to march uh, on, on, these, um, on the Midianites and the Amalekites that are there uh, occupying Israel. And God says, look, you have this army of 32,000 people, but it's too many because I need, I need a few enough so that Israel is 100% clear that it is, that it is me it is God who has delivered them. So through two different tests, God tells Gideon to send a group home. And by the time he's done, it's gone from 32,000 to 300 soldiers left. It's just a group of 300. And by the way, the enemy's army is 135,000 soldiers. It's 135,000 soldiers against 300. Why is God doing that? So that only God gets the glory. Let's see what happens next. This is a really beautiful passage. We're picking it up in Judges chapter 7, verse 9. Here's what it says. That same night, so the same night that the army's been reduced, that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. All right, so what, what's happening here? The same day Gideon has reduced down his army from 32,000 to 300, that night God wakes him up and says, it's go time. 
okay? It's time to take your 300 men and to go down into the valley and fight against this massive army. But if you're afraid, then here's what I want you to do. Take your servant, go down into the valley, get right there by, uh, by the, the first outpost there as you're entering into the camp, hear what they're talking about, and it will encourage you. It will swell your faith and your courage. So what does Gideon do? He takes them up on it. Why? Because Gideon, this entire way, he's struggling to have courage. And you see how gracious God is to swell Gideon's courage. So Gideon takes his servant and they go down into the camp um, on the outskirts of the camp of the Midianites and the Amalekites. Now, I love how it puts it right there in verse 12. It says, as he's going down into the camp, he says, he's getting closer and closer to this army. And he's like, this army is humongous. I mean, there's like a swarm of locusts. I mean, it might as well be a million people here. He's going down. He says, like, they, they have camels. You can't even number their, num their, their camels. He's like, it's like sand on the seashore. So if you're Gideon, you're walking down like, this is not encouraging God. Okay, the closer I get to this army, army, the more I realize this is impossible. But what is God doing? He's encouraging his faith because now it's, this is go time, okay? It took courage to accept that God was calling him to lead the armies of, of Israel. Okay, that took courage to believe that. It took courage for him to actually call the armies to come out and to fight with him, okay? And it probably took courage when they started showing up, like, wow, there's actually an army here and I've actually got to lead these people. Okay, it took courage to do that. Then it took great courage to reduce the army down to 300. But this is the moment of courage. I mean, if there's any moment that requires courage, this was it because now he has to actually take these 300 soldiers and actually take them into battle against 135,000. And God's gracious he wants, to he wants to stir up the courage of Gideon. But man, it's not encouraging yet because this army is huge. But watch what happens next. I mean, this is, this is incredible. Let's pick it up in verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Now pause with me there for a second. What happens? Gideon and his servant are walking down into this camp. I mean, it's got to be getting scarier and scarier with every step. Like, this is... These people are as far as I can see. I mean, how are we possibly 300 people going to fight this army? I don't even want to get any closer, but he gets closer. And God works the most incredible miracle. It just so happens that the people that Gideon and his servant are standing outside and listening to, he just so happens that that very people have a conversation. And it just so happens that that very people, God gives one of them a dream. 
And it just so happens that the one that that guy tells the dream to is the one that God gives an interpretation. And it just happens that they have that same conversation right when Gideon walks up to hear it. I mean, it is absolutely a miracle, like layered on top of, of themselves. God is swelling Gideon's courage. And what's the overall message? Well, there's this dream. Now, it's important to note that in this time in history, the ancients and for, and, and for much of antiquity, before they would go into war, they would be looking for signs or watching for omens from the gods, whatever gods they worshipped, to see if they would give them a sign as to whether or not they would win. And they were very sensitive to dreams. They thought dreams were signs. And so the fact that this man has a dream, they would be very sensitive. They're, they're encamped for war, they'd be very sensitive to a strange dream. So he wakes up, he's concerned, and he tells the dream to his, to his friend. What's the dream? He says there's a barley bread that comes flopping down into the camp. And that piece of bread hits a tent, knocks the tent over flat. That's the whole dream. The friend is given an interpretation from God for the dream. He may, may or may not realize that, but he says, this is what it, what it is. And he's saying that the piece of bread is um, a man named Gideon. Now, how he knew of Gideon, maybe they heard that there's a group coming up. Maybe God just gave him the miraculous insight. Um, who knows? But he's saying it's Gideon. Now, why would that emblem of a piece of barley bread make sense versus the tent representing Midian, that this bread comes toppling in and knocks the tent flat? Well, they are currently coming in to take the crops from the people of Israel. People of Israel are farmers as opposed to the people of Midianites are nomadic, so they set up tents. They, they don't have established cities. They set up tents and they, and they travel around. So a tent would be a, the, um, an emblem for Midian and a piece of bread made from grain would be an emblem for a farmer. And I think probably what's happening here is this piece of bread. I mean, think of like a piece of pita is coming flopping down. Maybe it's the, probably the image is from heaven. It's coming flopping down. It lands in, in, the, in the camp and knocks over this tent. In other words, there's this piece of barley bread coming down from heaven. Heaven, and that one tiny little piece of bread represents the person God has sent to rescue Israel, Gideon. So in this dream, I mean, it's not super flattering that Gideon is just a piece of bread. It would be a miracle for a piece of bread to knock over a tent. But that's the imagery that God gives in this dream. Gideon is just a piece of bread, but that bread is enough to topple the entire tent Gideon is, is hearing this. They're afraid. They're saying clearly God has, hear the wording of the interpretation. God has given us into Gideon's hand. It's clearly a miracle. Gideon hears that and he worships. Now, I'm going to read the whole rest of this battle and I want you to hear it because it's amazing. Listen, let's, let's pick it up. In Judges chapter 7, we're going to pick it up in verse 16. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Likewise. 
When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp. And all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set Every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel Mohela by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh. That's three different tribes of Israel. And they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim. That's another one of the tribes. Saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them. As far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. Now watch this. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and, the, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they then pursued Midian and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Incredible battle here. <laughs> I want you to hear what the battle plan is. It, it's, it's really brilliant. He comes back to camp, says to his 300 soldiers, tonight's the night, now's the time. Get up and get ready. Here's what I want you to take with you. He says, I want you to have a trumpet in one hand and I want you to have an empty jar with a torch hidden inside in the other hand. And he says, I want you to do what I do. When I blow the trumpet, smash the jar, hold up the torch, um, I want you to do the same and then I want you to shout, uh, for the Lord and for Gideon. So they, they marched out. They spread out three companies of 100 each. So all 300 men, they're spread out on three different sides. Gideon blew his trumpet, smashed the jar. All of a sudden, a torch appears. Then all of his men do that. They all blow their trumpets. They smash their jars. Now there's 100 torches. And then the other two companies do it. Now there's on, on three different sides, there are torches and trumpets and shouting. And they shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, the irony of that phrase is they're saying a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And that's the one thing they don't have with them. In fact, they don't have any weapons with them. <laughs> they only have a musical instrument and a torch under a jar. They have no weapons. They shout. Now, here's what happens inside the camp. Confusion happens inside the camp. Okay, there's some details in here that I want you to imagine. You're in the camp of Midian. The battle strategy here is actually brilliant because they did it right at the, the second watch, right when they get 
the new watchmen in place at each of the, the watch locations. So there's probably a different places around. They have just kind of had like a changing of the guard, okay? So now you've got new guards in place. The other ones are walking back through the camp to go to sleep, but they're probably fully armed Midianite soldiers walking back through their own camp. Now remember, this is not like a modern camp with floodlights. It's very, very dark. There's probably only a sporadic torchlight and then lights from the sky with the stars and the moon. It's going to be very dimly lit. Okay, so right at that point, you've got soldiers walking back home through the camp. If they had done it at any other time, the camp would be silent with no movement. But that's not this moment. They have just put a new watch in place. Soldiers are going through the camp. At that point, they hear trumpets, they hear shouting, they see torches, and they hear a huge clatter on one side of the camp. They're assuming that those are just the trumpeters from the army. And so if you've got 100 trumpets, that must be a massive army. They're sounding a war chant. That means that the army is going to be invading their camp and they're not prepared. So they all leap. They would leap out of their tents. They would rush out and prepare to flee the other way. But just as they start fleeing the other way, now they hear that there's an army over there. They go to the other direction. There's an army over here and they don't know which way to run and all they see is they're expecting army from every side, soldiers from all sides descending in on the camp. All they see is someone running through the camp armed. Who is it? It's probably the men who just came off of the watch. So they start attacking that person. When another person comes out of their tent, they see that they're in combat, then they jump into combat, and now you've got the entire Midianite Amalekites um, army fighting themselves. Eventually, they flee, and soldiers from four tribes chase them down and they capture them. They capture two of the princes of the Midianites. They kill them. They bring the heads back to Gideon. And it's just this incredible, incredible uh, moment of victory. But there's something that's so beautifully symmetrical and poetic at the end. Did you notice specifically where it took a moment to tell you precisely where they executed these two Midianite rulers. One was at a rock and the other was at a wine press. That's the exact geographic situation where God first met with Gideon and told him that he was raising him up to be a mighty warrior. Gideon was in a wine press and the Lord appeared to him at a rock and did a sign with fire leaping from that rock. What's God communicating? He's saying exactly what I told you I would do, I did. See, this is a miracle. I mean, it, what's interesting, I love how <laughs> the way that the, the Hebrew literature works, it leaves it this tension. God didn't tell him the battle plan. But do you think that battle plan came from a farmer? I mean, that's the tension it's leaving you there. I mean, you hear this brilliant battle plan of, you know, how to destroy a giant army with only 300 men. I mean, I don't know if you can think of something more brilliant than that. I mean, it's perfect. The timing, all of it. And it's like the, the Hebrew literature is beckoning you. Like, do, do you see what happened? Like, do you really think it was Gideon? I mean, clearly this is the Lord. In fact, it says, like even though the, the battle tactics were brilliant, what it says is when they blew the trumpets, it says specifically, the Lord 
caused them to start fighting each other. The Lord is in all of this. He's inspiring all of this. He's leading all of this. And he's giving Gideon courage all along the way to just be obedient to what he's calling him to do. I mean, it's a beautiful story. You see just the grace of God to just raise up this unlikely person. I mean, who is Gideon in this whole, in this whole equation? He's like a loaf of bread. This is a beautiful story, but here's this thing. There's this one part of this story that just doesn't sit right with me. Okay, there's this one piece of the story that when I hear it, I'm just like, ah, just not sure about this one small little piece. It's the war cry. And it's got to be important because it's repeated twice. I mean, Gideon instructs them what to shout, and then it says what they shouted. And the war cry is this, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. I mean, maybe it's nothing, but it just, there's something about that that just does not, just doesn't sit right with this whole story. I mean, the whole point is that God is demonstrating to Israel that he is their deliverer. He is their king. He is their savior. He is their protector. He is the one true living God. There is no other. To turn from their idols and turn back to the one living God. In fact, the immediately preceding verses to this whole episode is God is reducing down the army so that no one gets the glory but him. So it's just something that just doesn't sit right with then Gideon telling them to chant for the Lord. And then he adds this little word, and. For the Lord. This battle is for the Lord in the name of the Lord, for his glory, for the Lord, and for Gideon. It just doesn't seem right. I mean, that's not what David does. What David does when David goes and he, he fights the giant Goliath. Goliath is looking at this shepherd boy, this nobody. He says, I can't believe you're coming to fight against me. What does David say? David says the exact opposite. He says to Goliath, he looks at this, this champion warrior in the eyes and says, look, you're coming against me with a sword and spear, but I'm coming against you with only the Lord of hosts. That is all I need. So, you know, you, you hear this war cry for the Lord and, little word in there, and for Gideon. And it may just be semantics. Well, maybe he's cueing them to the, to the dream that he overheard. It's just hard to believe that in the middle of the night, 135,000 people would have already heard that dream. That just doesn't seem likely. So why does he need to add the and for Gideon? I mean, maybe it's just semantics. But the problem is we have the rest of Gideon's story that we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. And what we see is that right in this moment, there's a change in Gideon. And it reveals that something that thus far, it's just kind of hinting right here that there's a change happening. Here, Gideon has no courage. But from this point on, we'll see that he suddenly has found courage. But we'll see he's found courage in the Lord and himself. And that and 
gets very dangerous. See, there's this dynamic that, that happens to us sometimes where we're facing something very scary. Maybe you've got something scary going on in your life. Undoubtedly, we all have something that's causing us fear right now. We all have things that are fearful. Well, it's just, you know, whatever it could be, a health thing, a financial thing, a career thing, a relational thing. There's something that's causing us anxiety. There's something that we're like, I don't know how this story's gonna end, and it's giving me anxiousness. There's something that each one of us have that's causing us to have fear, and we're trying to have courage in the midst of the fear. But what happens inside is so important. Where do we find that courage? See, for the world, that's not a mystery. The world will find their courage in themselves. So at the end of some great feat, hey, you won the championship. How did you win the championship? Well, I never stopped believing in myself. I've worked hard all my life, and I trusted in myself. I trusted in my talents. I trusted in my background. So I never stopped believing in themselves. What are they saying? When it got hard, when it got scary, when it got stressful, I reminded myself of what I'm bringing to the table, and it gave me confidence. But for a person of faith, we would know that that's not the right answer. Okay, I'm not, you know, I don't want to have faith in myself. So we would say, well, I give all glory to the Lord. Well, it was God. I give all credit to God. God did this. But here's the tricky thing. Very subtly inside of our hearts, there just might be an and. All glory to God and my hard work. All glory to God and my gifting. All glory to God and my background and my consistency and my habits and my education and my intelligence and my creativity. Glory to God and it's that and that is so scary because here's what happens when we're facing things that are causing us anxiety, when we're facing things that cause us fear. We've got to dig down deep and figure what it is that we're pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. What is it that's making us have confidence to walk forward towards what we're facing? Well, it's it, it so often the easiest thing is we look to ourselves and we find self-confidence. But this whole story and honestly the whole message of the gospel, the whole message of the Bible is put your confidence in the Lord. Make him and he alone the strong tower to which we run. Have our confidence in God alone. But so often we're like, oh, I've got this man, I've got this big presentation at work and, you know, I'm uh, nervous. I've got to do it over Zoom. You know, it's not going to be good and I've got to get this presentation. Oh, I'm so, uh, I'm so anxious. And in that moment, maybe we don't even realize it, what we do to settle our nerves and give ourselves confidence that it will work out all right is we say inside, but you know, I'm good at making a presentation. I know that if I just give my best, it'll be enough. You know, I know that I've, I've really, I, the material I'm going to present, it's got to work. You know, I've got, I've got good data. I've got good stats. I've got good research. You know, I've got good credibility with them. You know, I've got, I've got good standing with them. I've got a good reputation. And, I'm, and I go inside my heart. Maybe you go inside your heart. We go inside our hearts, inside of ourselves, and we look for things in ourselves to give us the courage we need. Maybe it's a bad health uh, report. We hear something scary. Whoa, I've got that going on. 
wow, I'm anxious now. I'm afraid. I need courage. And so then, so often what we do is we look inside. Well, you know what, though? I'm a fighter. I can get through this. I've got medical connections. I've got wisdom. I've got a good path. I've been consistent before with how I've taken care of myself. I can beat this. Or maybe it's economically. Man, finances are bad. Maybe I lost my job. Oh, that's so stressful. But you know what? I'm all right because I interview well. It's going to be okay because I've got a good resume. I've got good experience. I've got good education. I've got good accomplishments. So I know that I can have courage in myself. Or you know what? The finances are tight. But you know what? I've walked through this before. Ten years ago, there was a recession and I made it through. I can get through this because I've been consistent. I'm smart. I'm resourceful. I'm industrious. I will get through this. In times of anxiety, our reflex is to look at how we are going to get through. You know, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know I can put together a plan. But what this whole story is telling us It's the Lord. All of those things are at the Lord's disposal. If he chooses to use them, the only thing we can anchor our courage in is the Lord. Well, no, no, yeah, I mean, I I know that. I mean, I believe in the Lord. It's ultimately going to be the Lord. Yeah, I'm not saying that we're not talking about the Lord. It's just that, we do the Lord and. Yeah, I, I asked my small group to be praying for me. I said, hey, I got this big thing coming up. Be praying for me. So it's just the Lord and then the rest of the days of the week. Really, my courage is in myself. It's the Lord and me. It's just the Lord. There's no and. See, here's what God is wanting to do. God is wanting to call us to be a part of things, to be used for things that are so far beyond our capacity that we learn to get comfortable finding our courage in just one place. It's just the Lord. It's just the Lord. It's the Lord and nothing else. Find your courage in just the Lord. You say, yeah, but I mean, honestly, you know, when it comes down to it, I mean, we're talking like the practical things of life. I mean, health and business and my job and my career and my company, you know, my education. We're talking about practical things. I mean, I know the Lord's a part of it, but it's just kind of hard to get all of my confidence from just the spiritual theological stuff. I mean, I believe that, but really my confidence is that I'm a hard worker. I'm a smart guy. I'm going to get it done. You know, that's really where my confidence for everyday life is. That right there is the difference of being a person of faith. It's not just believing cognitively that there is a God. It is the walk of faith that I actually live like that is true. What does the book of James says? It says, oh, you believe in God cognitively? You have an awareness that there is a God? Good for you. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's a matter of faith. The type of faith that is lived out in our lives. We're actually living lives, our lives as if there is a living God calling us to be a part of a miraculous plan to reach this world. You know what's powerful about this army? It's something beautiful. This army had no weapon except for their shout. 
That was all that their, that their weapon was. They said a sword. But what was their sword? It was just shouting and blowing trumpets and raising up the torch, taking the torch out from, from under a jar. You know what's interesting is the, the Lord says that we're a light that's not hidden under a bushel. It's not hide, hidden under a basket. We're, we're to be a light to this world. He actually says that in, in Ephesians, it says we're in a spiritual battle. We have armor and our only weapon, our only sword is the word of God. It's the message of God. It's lifting up the name of Jesus. See, you and I are called to this incredible mission of reaching our city with the one message of Jesus. We're called to reveal Jesus and lift his name alone. Lift up the name of Jesus and reveal to our city who Jesus is with the belief that then God will work a miracle and will revolutionize our entire city as, as the name of Jesus is being revealed. And as we're joining the, the churches throughout South Florida, joining the army in South Florida of Christ followers, we will see the miracle happen of our city transformed. You are called to be a part of that, Christian. To be a part of that great work of declaring a message. You know, it's interesting that, um, that Gideon is compared to a piece of bread that comes down from heaven because the message that we're declaring is about the true bread from heaven. Jesus says, I am the bread. And he actually said that his bread, he said that his body, which is the bread, would be, would be broken for us and he actually gave himself to die on the cross, paying for our sins so that we could become a part of the people of God. We could be adopted into his family. And so Jesus is the true bread from heaven. And he single-handedly won the battle against our enemies of sin and death. See, in the same way, even our salvation our salvation is not us. It's not the Lord and. It's not, yeah, Jesus died on the cross and I'm living a good life or I go to church and I pray a lot or I call myself a Christian. It's just the work that Jesus did. It's not Jesus and you. It's just Jesus. Here's what I want to invite you to do. I, I want to invite you right now in this moment to consider surrendering your life to just Jesus and the work that he did on the cross. He washed away all of your sins. He called you to be a part of the family of God. He rose again from the dead so that you could know that you, will, you too will rise after you die and live forever in heaven. Just that work and that work alone is what can save you. Give your life over to Jesus and, and what you're doing is you're surrendering to the movement that he is leading us to see our world transformed by lifting up his name and revealing who Jesus is. He's inviting you to be a part of that. And the way you do that is surrendering your life to Jesus. And if you're ready to take that step, if you're not ready, then I'm just glad that you're joining us. And I want to encourage you to, to continue joining us on this journey. But if you're ready to take that step, then I want you to join the rest of the City Rev family as we take communion. If you have communion, I want you to take out that, that bread and that juice. These are the two elements. Here's what Jesus did the night before he was betrayed. The night he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, he 
took his followers at, at the meal and he, he broke the bread and said, this is like my body that will be broken for you. And he poured out the, the, the wine and he says, this wine is a symbol of my blood that is shed for you. He says, I want you to take this in remembrance of me. And we're told that every time we take this meal, it's a reminder of our unity for what God has done for all of us, binding us together as one in Christ. And it's a proclamation of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So if you're not ready to declare that Jesus is your savior, the only way that you can be saved, then hold off from taking this. But if Jesus is your Lord and savior, I want you to take this and remember that he and he alone saved you. A complete act of mercy. So let's take that bread, remembering that his body was broken, and let's take the bread together. I want you to also take the juice. And as you drink this juice, I want you to remember that Jesus' blood was shed for you. It's only by his blood that we're saved. We don't contribute anything to it. It's just by the blood of Jesus, that incredible gift of grace. So let's take this together. Let's pray together. Lord, we find that you are our only source of confidence and courage. Thank you that you saved us, Jesus. Thank you that you call us to find our confidence in our salvation only in you. And thank you that you have called us to be a part of your mission to reveal the person of Jesus to this world. Would you help us to get comfortable finding our courage only in you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, church, as uh, we close our time together, we're going to close with a time of worship. And the first song that we're going to sing together is a song called Run to the Father. And in that song, you'll notice in the lyrics, it talks about how we so often carry this burden that we were not designed to carry. We're designed to give that burden over to the Lord. And so maybe there are things that you're carrying in this season, things that you're trying to stir up your confidence in yourself, but roll that off. Trust the Lord and the Lord alone. Search your heart. Where are you finding self-confidence in the things you're facing rather than trusting that the almighty God of the universe is at work in your life? Run to your Father and unload these burdens before Him. Let's worship together. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.